You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 113, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. Today's expert is Dr. Melissa Cady. She's a pain specialist by training, although she no longer practices pain, and we're going to get into that in the show about why that is. She's the author of the book, Pain-demic, which explores the nature of pain, how the treatment process is really messed up, and how in many ways it's not designed to actually make people feel better and to treat pain. But before we start the show, here's a quick message from Medevolve, a company that empowers physician practices to work smarter with data-driven services. Are you tired of dealing with headaches like finding and retaining quality billing staff, high turnover, and limited resources? Many practices are opting to outsource all or part of their billing process to help relieve the burden of internal staff, free up resources, and reduce overhead costs. For those who wish to keep billing in-house, it's critical to have solutions, that provide automation and give you the ability to monitor staff productivity and effectiveness, especially for remote employees. Medevolve can help you leverage data and AI solutions that bring answers to the forefront and take the guesswork out of revenue cycle management. Let them show you how. To have this great company help you work smarter, reduce your costs to collect, and get paid on time, find them at drpodcastnetwork.com slash medevolve. The link is also in the description of the show. I encourage you to go to theparadox.com slash 113 to find today's show notes, which include links to Dr. Katie's book and other useful links. Finally, I'd like to thank my patrons at patreon.com slash theparadox. They help defray the costs for the production and the promotion of the show. And if you find value in the show and want to support it financially, it'd be much appreciated. You can do that, obviously, at the Patreon page at thepatreon.com slash theparadox. Also, feel free to drop me a line on email at theparadoxshow at protonmail.com, or you can certainly go to the website at theparadox.com. Many of my show ideas, it comes from listeners, and I really appreciate it. And obviously, I super appreciate the fact that you share and promote the show with your friends, family, and colleagues. It's why the show continues to grow and why I'm now part of the Dr. Podcast Network. But let's get going with the show, The Pandemic with Dr. Melissa Cady. Enjoy. Well, I'm here with my friend, Dr. Melissa Cady. She's a co-host of the Change Physician Podcast and is an anesthesiologist working part-time in Austin, Texas. She's also the author of the book, Pandemic, and today we're going to talk about her book. So, Dr. Katie, thanks for joining the show. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to chat with you, and uh, yeah, we've, we've done this a few times in, in different settings, so this is great. We have. We're, we're kind of guessing on each other's uh, podcasts all the time. Um, yeah. So the least I could do is return the favor. And I think you have a really interesting story and uh, one that I want to make sure my listeners have an opportunity to hear. Uh, but let's start with kind of talk about you first before we get into the book and through the discussion about pain. How did you end up in medical school as a, and then go into your fellowship training in pain? Sure. Well, I, you know, I've always loved being 
active and played sports and um, was a very curious, I guess, kid. Um, and so I think I just naturally was inclined to get into personal training, which uh, ironically is, I think, a little bit of a bridge there that made me curious about going to medicine. And uh, it was mainly when I had clients that were having like back pain or they're having like heart, had heart issues. And it made me very nervous because I didn't really know <laughs> if I was pushing them too much or what was safe and all of that out of concern for them. And, you know, and also feeling like a lack of knowledge didn't feel good, um, which I think is a lot of uh, why sometimes not just wanting to help people, but um, there is a curiosity that has to go with being able to go through the grueling requirements of going through medical training. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, somehow we kind of normalize it when we're going through it because we're just so determined to get it done that we'll do whatever it takes. Uh, at least I speak for myself. But I went into, uh, so I went to UT, University of Texas at Austin, and uh, I couldn't find this exercise science. I guess I looked in the medical science degrees and, and didn't see anything there, but microbiology sounded really cool. So I was like, I didn't know much about it, but um, figured you know, I learned some things and halfway through, like two years into it, I realized kinesiology, <laughs> science of exercise science, uh, was in a college of education and I didn't really want to switch over, um, kind of wanted to finish, figure it was good enough. And then I started getting curious during my personal training during college that um, maybe I should just try for medical school. So I didn't have this big audacious goal of as a child that I want to be a doctor, but I thought about being a vet, I loved animals, but so I finally decided uh, to apply to medical school. And um, in Texas at the time, there was kind of a universal system. It would apply to multiple uh, schools, but there was one called the Texas Osteopathic uh, or Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine in Fort Worth that was a separate application. Um, so I applied to Texas uh, and also this other one and was accepted into this Texas system uh, UT Houston, and then I was accepted to the osteopathic school. And meanwhile, of course, always having my my mind being interested in multiple things, I thought it'd be cool to be a massage therapist, you know, I could do that. <laughs> so I, I literally got some things, um, you know, kind of squared away thinking about that. And so it was interesting because I loved the musculoskeletal system. I loved sports. I thought the musculoskeletal system was cool and and how you can adapt your body. And so when I got accepted to both medical schools, I was like, well, this osteopathic stuff sounds really cool and interesting. And I, I, I think I always venture towards different, like I'm always wanting to run off the path and like, I didn't want to be in sororities. Like I just want to be this independent person and do my own thing. So I think it all kind of collides and similar things, but I ended up going to the osteopathic school and I found it um, intriguing just to learn that other skill set. And so, um, you know, fast forward, I get through all this medical school and, and trying to figure out what I want to do as far as specialty. I still didn't have a clue. Um, I liked everything, just like I found myself doing that, you know, yeah. going into medical school. So I think, you know, I realized that I just love learning and I'm just very curious. So I love physical medicine rehab, kind of tied into this musculoskeletal thing, but it was a very holistic look at the patient, have to understand the social elements all of that. And then even primary care, internal medicine, um, thought about orthopedic surgery, had people try to push me to go do that. And even some of the residents, um, you know, and I discovered, you know, when I, I, I was an intern and, you know, I'm trying to like, I, I'm trying to decide, first of all, let me just, just say, I couldn't make up my mind to the point that I, 
pigeonholed myself into maybe radiology, interventional radiology, because it's anatomy on the screen, um, in <laughs> essence. And so I pigeonholed myself into a couple programs, which is just idiotic, to be quite honest. Um, it's so competitive. And so I didn't get into that. So I had to scramble. I had to scramble for, and I got into general surgery, which I knew nothing about. Um, didn't even know what NG tube was. Uh, so I ended up doing a year of general surgery. Whoa. I, I mean, talk about looking, looking, feeling like an idiot on the first day <laughs> and on grand rounds and being, you know, drilled by um, literally like a military kind of position. And I just felt like the stupidest person on earth, but I learned so much. It, it was like a serious growth curve. Um, but in that process, I realized I didn't like just writing orders. Like I, I didn't like, um, telling a nurse what to do and not knowing how to do it myself. I know right. that sounds strange, but then I discovered anesthesia, obviously, in, inherently with surgery. And so I was accepted into the anesthesia program because I didn't get into radiology like the second time. And um, So actually, let me, there was another year in there too. So, <laughs> so all these connections, you can tell they're just erratic, just based on curiosity. So I did a, a year of general surgery but because of the timing and not getting into radiology the second time, I had to go do another internship. Otherwise, I had to pay back my loans. Oh, like a transitional year sort of thing. Right. Because the anesthesia stuff wasn't really, I didn't show interest till like after that initial process for that second year. So I went to another city in Texas called Temple at Scott and White Hospital. I did a year of internal medicine, got a categorical position, meaning if I didn't come back to doing anesthesia, I had a slot for like a three-year period. Yeah. So... I go and I do, I mean, you think you're a glutton for punishment just going through the medical system and training and, and I go and do two internships, <laughs> which oh was gosh. not, was not necessary. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, you can't go work at Whataburger and pay off your, your loans. So um, I couldn't take a year off. So I went and did that, had a great background. When you think about it for anesthesia, if you have a year of general surgery, a year of internal medicine, you come back in and you do yeah. anesthesia, but the cool thing about anesthesia is that I could be one-on-one -on -one with my patient and I could do all the things that I felt like it, it just, that, that nurturing nursing aspect, I felt like I get a portion of that in that process. And I also didn't want to be that person on a flight. <laughs> like if someone asked, is there a physician yeah. in the house or on the plane? I didn't want to be the person like, uh, yeah, I don't know what to do. Like <laughs> I felt like I, I actually had some skill sets that seemed legitimate as a physician. So, um, so I landed myself in anesthesia and, and through that anesthesia residency, this is where you're kind of getting at is I discovered the pain service, the acute pain service, they called it. And I, I was just kind of fascinated to be able to take pain away, like yeah. in, in the traditional sense. And so in these acute pain situations, so I was drawn to that. I knew uh, I was going through a lot personally, um, you know, I had at the end of my anesthesia residency decided to leave a very unhealthy marriage. And then I knew that if I wasn't going to, I was curious about pain and there was that pain fellowship on site, same facility. I was like, okay, if I don't do it now, I'll never do it. Cause I know that, you know, you see people leave and it's like hard to come yeah. back to training. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to tough it out for a year and um, did my pain fellowship. But what was, if you look at all this stuff I told you and my curiosity and my love for just, you know, sports and being, I'm just very kinesthetically, I guess, associated with, I, I just love things that are part of movement. And so I, I learned also this osteopathic philosophy 
which I think tied into my philosophy of my own anyway, um, that I think I kind of inherently developed through managing injuries on my own and, and kind of having faith and belief in the system that it can self heal. And so when I was in my pain fellowship, I would see literally all my fellows in my program would tell you that I saw like half the number of patients they did spent more time with them was willing to, I, I saw it as a challenge um, to just take on these most difficult patients. Cause I was curious. I was just like, yeah, I want to hear the story. I want to like, see if I can help them in ways. And then I would try to find a way to help them without doing the injections or doing the spinal cord stimulators. And it's like, I saw it as, okay, risk benefit. You know, I, yeah. as much as I love using my hands and doing things to people, I always, I felt like I want to do the less risk thing so I can use my hands, but I can maybe show them how to move their body or, you know, just have them be less fearful of movement and all these things are kind of tied in into what some PTs might do or whatever. So um, I started having this hesitation to utilize some of the things I was being taught and started questioning when I was helping people, including a, a head surgeon, I'm not going to say names, but head surgeon's daughter who was having basically a million dollar workup in the hospital and was still hurting. And I basically evaluated, I was asked by the director of the program just to evaluate because I just did things differently. And, and this is not to pat me on the back because half the time I'm thinking, oh God, I hope this helps. <laughs> <laughs> and and literally I did a, you know, kind of did my hands-on full evaluation, spent a lot of time with her, heard her story. Now, those are really important parts for something I say later, but I, I literally did a couple things and started moving and her pain went away. So you can imagine after a million dollar workup, uh, maybe poked and prodded, I don't, I can't remember all the details there, but to suddenly her, and I tried to make sense of why I had helped her and she was no longer having pain. Um, those are those kind of moments, those aha moments, like what are what are we doing here? And then seeing on the outside world, the private world, where they try one thing, didn't work. They'll try something else, didn't work. You know, they change the diagnosis code, they need to like play with the whole insurance game. And, but I'm like, what, like, why is this person hurting? Like, I didn't understand why we had to go to that extreme and do those things if I could help them in other ways or they could help themselves. So this is where it's interesting because most people that finish their pain fellowship go into practice. Yeah, right. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> um, I felt pretty nauseated at the idea of practicing the way I like to practice and knowing damn well that I would not be able to afford the roof over my head um, because I wasn't doing the things that were lucrative. I was spending time with patients. I was doing things that didn't really get paid well. <laughs> um, and so I was like, well, I'm just, you know, and I've been a year off. I, I did a little bit of uh, moonlighting during that year when I had time off. Um, but I went back into anesthesia after a year of doing a pain fellowship, which is nerve wracking in and of itself. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I have friends that went into pain and thought they should get out of pain and they feel like I don't want to kill somebody. Like, they're worried, you know, just getting yeah. back into the swing of things. So um, do you want me to keep rolling with my story? Or? No, I, well, I mean, I think that's interesting because I feel like I've, well, in our practice, we have people who are pain physicians who want to do some anesthesia and do the pain and they have the same trepidation, right? Like I've not done anesthesia in 10 years. And 
I think the the thing for people who are coming out of training, uh, if you've been if you're a physician, you've finished your specialty training, you will understand this. If you're not, then you don't really understand what I'm about to say. But I'll try and explain it to you. <laughs> When you do your residency, you are never the final check on whatever's going on, right? There's always someone you, you're attending. You can say, because the classic line is, right? I'm I'm just the resident, right? Mm-hmm. Or or maybe just the fellow, right? And then when you go into training or when you leave training into practice, that's when you sort of figure out how you practice, right? And you use a, the, I guess I like to say you sort of like use the building blocks, the fundamentals that you learned in your residency training, and you sort of figure out how you do anesthesia, how you do general surgery, whatever the specialty might be. And that takes a few years before you kind of get a flow and get a feel for sort of how you do things. And so to finish your residency where you're doing anesthesia all the time and then not do anesthesia for a year, when you never had the opportunity to sort of build that, that sort of familiarity and confidence, it's, I can only imagine it's very unsettling. Like it'd be, it'd be much different for me to leave anesthesia for a year and now go back because I've done it for, you know, 16, 20 years or something. Sure. And so for me to leave it, I mean, I could do it. I think probably after a couple of years, you you definitely walk in rusty, and you know, it's a very procedurally oriented profession. Uh, and then I guess the other part about what you said that I think is interesting is the fact that you just knew that the reason people go into pain—that's not a fair thing to say. Let me start again. Mm-hmm. Uh, that to be successful financially in pain, you have to do certain things, and generally that means you have to do things. You can't sit and talk to people. The reimbursement rates for those sort of things are just much, much lower than doing, right? I mean, right, like doing epidurals and to do stellate ganglion blocks and all that kind of stuff, right? And so, and so the, I think the allure of pain like you have is the acute stuff. And I think that's what I really enjoy doing when I do anesthesia. I love doing the, the nerve blocks and someone has like a totally dead arm for a day and their shoulder doesn't hurt or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's very satisfying. I know personally that I would have, I would struggle with chronic pain because I couldn't make that person better right away, yeah. right? That the whole reason when anesthesia is because, oh, my blood pressure is high. I'll give you medicine. Boom. It's lower. <laughs> my blood pressure is low. I'll give you medicine. Boom. It's higher. Yeah. I have instant gratification as an anesthesiologist. I would really struggle where I have to sort of slowly kind of make things better or to do it non-pharmacologically. I mean, that's kind of what you're talking about. Yeah. And which also explains why you went into be a DO, an osteopath, because that you were sort of definitely you're definitely enamored with the fact that you could put your hands on someone and you can actually manipulate and do some, do some, some things. And that comes through in the book as well. I mean, I can definitely see that it is a holistic approach to pain that you're looking at. So you wrote this book mm-hmm. about pain, about the pain. I think I just kind of touched on a, a few things sort of, but why don't you describe why you wrote the book and what you felt you were trying to convey sure. to people and you know, who, who your audience is? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, um, it's good to know that, you know, I, I came out of my fellowship and did part-time anesthesia. Um, and I was intentional about being part-time because I was trying to kind of create my life and I didn't want to live a certain st- uh, cost, a standard of living that I would be stressed out to maintain financially. Yeah. So um, I always started out part-time. So they gave me the time and the resources to kind of play with other things. And so um, it's interesting, this book did not, would probably not have happened if it wasn't for an interaction with an older gentleman who had like a 90-something-year-old father he was talking about at the gym. And he, I was just impressed with the guy I was talking about. And then he started talking about his father and somehow it came into this pain world. And then I started giving my, you know, I felt compelled. Uh, sometimes, uh, <laughs> you know, I had to reel myself back in because sometimes 
no, people don't want to hear this. This guy was like, like eating it up. And yeah, it's yeah. like, he's like, you, you have, you have a message. You need to put it out there. And, you know, and, and I just laughed when he's, when he said something about writing a book and then, but that planted the seed. So, um, you know, fast forward from, you know, I finished my fellowship in 2009 and I had this building frustration with the system and feeling like people are being led astray and not being told the truth. And, and um, it's just a, such a complicated medical system that we have, this whole medical industrial complex that we have. And so um, I, I put myself in some conferences that are totally non-medical. There are like people that have written books, um, marketing kind of conferences, self-development, personal improvement kind of things. And I was so jazzed. I mean, I got so jazzed by the people in those settings and they were so happy. And it's like, these are my people. Like, I, I, I love being around this energy. It gets me inspired. It makes me think about doing things that I never thought about doing. Because sometimes in the lull of everyday work, it's sometimes in medicine, it, it's it, uh, a lot of people that are burned out. It, it sometimes can just, it can drain you. So I was, I was lifted by a lot of this. And um, I had a breakout session in one of these. And they said, think about your book and what you'd like to call it. And I don't know where it came from. I mean, of course, the pandemic now did not happen. Yeah, right now. <laughs> <laughs> We're right in the middle of, but pandemic popped in my head. And I was, I mean, I, I was super excited about that word. And, and they're like, please share with people in your small group. You know, you have to trust that they're going to do the right thing and not steal it and all this. And so people were very, uh, they, they thought it was cool. Um, so this whole pandemic arose, I went ahead and just registered it as a trademark so that, you know, you just never know. But <laughs> um, so, so this whole, this, this whole book came about because I had, I reckon I started giving value to my voice. Um, and uh, there is always levels of doubt uh, as physicians, you know, it, as humans, we do, you know, what we're comfortable with. And so I think, you know, speaking of even going from like pain back to anesthesia, like, you know, that those shifts and those changes are really, really hard. And, um, you know, so I felt, I felt like, um, you know, this, it was just a strong enough message and a strong enough why for me to put it out there. And so I was just going through articles after articles that I don't know if you saw in the back of the book, there's tons of references yeah. and those have all been read by me. Um, and I would highlight and make notes. And I would, I realized that blocking, doing blocks of time, like on airplanes where I was kind of, couldn't really do much like in my house or get distracted. Yeah, right. I would have a journal or um, I have my little memo in my phone and I would just start going nuts and just everything I got passionate about, I just started writing it. And so then I would just take all of that information and throw it on a Microsoft Word document. And then I started pruning it a little bit. Um, but the book itself and trying to know how to publish that, I went to a conference about publishing your like own book or, yeah, sure. and I had the draft that I'd put together and they had this really cool session where you had two people and one of them is probably going to be someone associated with the publisher that was putting on this conference. And I just kind of pitched my book. I had like two minutes and the guy was like, do you have a draft? And I was like, well, actually I do on my computer. So I emailed it. It got accepted. It was a hybrid publisher. So you have to market yourself, but they help uh -huh. with all the basic steps. So that's how my book, that was in 2013 when I pitched it or 2014, 2014, I pitched it. 
came up with the name in 2013. I pitched in 2014, um, finalized like the, the, the arrangement of it all in 2015. It was released in like, uh, I think February, 2016. So the book is intention was to share my perception at that time. I, I've evolved a lot, even over these past four years, five years, but my perception of what were, what chronic pain is or what pain is and like what the medical system is and, and, and a more holistic look at it so that people go into this system with their eyes wide open. And that, that was my intention. It was to empower people to recognize that there's way more to pain than people realize. And there's way more complexity in this system and how people can be led astray. And I knew that, you know, You've seen people that have 10 surgeries on their pre-ops, you know, going into surgery and it was meant to treat pain. It wasn't because of maybe a drop foot or something. You see people right. that have pain. They've tried all these things, but yet they're still back. <laughs> yeah. So that that's where all of that came from. Well, and it's very interesting when it comes to, um, well, I guess with the, with pain, it's so it's so difficult to assess, right? I mean, that's, I think that the, the first part of the book, I think in many ways just is trying to find a definition and sort of an explanation for why pain exists and what it is, right? I, it's a perception thing. It's not necessarily mechanical. It's, it's a very elusive, right? And, and that's what makes it so difficult for someone who's going to diagnose someone with pain because it's really pretty nonspecific. And yet it's a real thing, right? And everyone experiences it. I mean, we absolutely know there's pains a thing, but I, it's a, is your intent sort of just to tell people like pain's okay, it's normal, and that you can actually, you have some control over it? Because I feel like a lot of times there are, there are people who just feel like it just happened to them and then there's nothing they can do about it. Yeah. So if it's okay, I'll bridge kind of what I was putting out to how I perceive it now. Um, yeah. It most, I tried to use a lot of the literature that is not constructed around the most, like there was some, some uh, introduction of the more modern science of pain. Um, but, you know, I feel like I was still trying to put the terminology and the definitions of the traditional look at pain. So, um, which is why this year I'm promising myself, trying to hold myself accountable. <laughs> But I'm going to write my my updated version of Pandemic um, and prune it even more and simplify it down even more um, because it is quite dense, um, the book itself. And so um, there's aspects that I feel like are like stay the same. But there's things that I'd want to change. And a lot of that is trying to um, trying to define it. it. It the best way to, to describe it, it's an experience. So it's not some objective thing. And I just was part of a, uh, an online conference I participated in this past weekend. And um, they talk about that all pain is pain. All pain is real and that all pain can change. And I think it's a perfect summary of that, that it's an experience that you have to believe the person in front of you. Of course, could somebody lie and not be experiencing pain and just have some other objective? Sure. I would say most people aren't going to waste their time you know, yeah. if they're in pain, they're in pain and you just take their word for it. Uh, the problem is we have a very simplified um, sequential type of this is very linear. This happens and you have pain. Um, but 
the overall um and in if you talk to my friend dr kevin Ducaro, um he has a really i think it's like an hour uh, presentation on you know why we hurt and a simplified like metaphor and i think that's a great way to look at it but essentially sensory input is what we're used to we're thinking also the sensory input is the reason we have pain like it lights up and it's a very sequential like linear thought to pain but that's not really what's going on it, there might be an extreme big huge sensory component like all these receptors that receive information like someone's leg gets cut off without any anesthesia like the blocks you do um, there's a huge sensory component but there's so many other things that are influencing from the top so emotions your belief your cognitions your your thoughts about what this means so the meaning you put to that um, you can look at different cultures that you know have different things happen to them that you would think they'd be screaming and writhing in pain but it might be considered a very positive thing and they don't it's 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 a different kind of stoicism and it's it just you can see so many differences in how people respond to just sensory input because there's the thoughts and beliefs and emotions that tie into it. So I always remind people, if you stub your toe and you just want a million dollars, you don't care about the stub toe, <laughs> right. you know, but if you just got an argument with your significant other, then, you know, that stub toe probably hurts twice as much. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So the point is, is that those are just very simplified, a few things that contribute to the experience of pain, but there are so many things in our environment, our past, our traumas, our um, just what we believed at that point in time when that happened and how we interpret it for the current situation. I'm sure even with the pediatrician, they probably could tell you maybe there was some micro traumas from just injections and they respond differently. And then later in life, they don't know why they pass out the moment they see a needle. Like you just don't know. Sure. There, there's so many things. So um, I think that with pain, I've recognized it's super fascinating because it is a, it's like, you know, I, I compared it in my book, you know, it's not quite love. I mean, you think that's more the antidote <laughs> to pain, <laughs> but how do you describe love? You know, you can't really just grab it in the air. It's, it's something it's, there's so many sensory inputs that create that experience and the way we're going about it in medicine is as if it's just this, you know, thing that happens at this place you feel it. But ironically, all of our pain is constructed in our brain. It's not in your head as if you're crazy. It's just, it's all constructed there. And so whatever sensory information that's coming in, it can be modulated by the brain and spinal cord. So it's, it just reminds us that we're one system that's picking up inputs in so many different ways. And um, even the way we understand the brain as if this spot is responsible for speech or whatever, it's, there's actually multiple locations always communicating. And as you, you just look at people who've lost parts of the brain and then it adapts and accommodates. And I, I think it's just a fascinating uh, realm of medicine, but the way we've been going about it has been, um, it's been not good for patients and um, it's had serious consequences. And um, despite doing, you know, 500 to a thousand percent more interventions and treating it like this thing down there that's causing the problem, we have more pain in this country than we ever had before. Yeah, that's a great way. Of, I love comparing it to love because it is, uh, it's a human experience. We all, well, 
shit all except Hopefully. point some point experience <laughs> and uh but it and it has definitely physical components but it also has maybe more mental or you mm-hmm. know right it's emotional and and i i like the part of the book where you talk about how it and i don't even know if i can pronounce this probably but diagnocentric oh, yeah. diagnocentric uh mm-hmm. way of looking at things where uh the example would be well we do it all the time in medicine yeah. where we say Hey, are we going to do this? Are we doing the ankle fracture next? Yep, we're going to do the ankle fracture right, now, right. So we we oftentimes describe patients as a diagnosis. Yeah. <laughs> like the gallbladder's coming in next. Like right? I mean, obviously gallbladders come in as persons come in. They all have gallbladders, but but uh, sort of the notion that you are a, you are just whatever your diagnosis is. I'm a person with chronic fatigue syndrome, or I've got uh, Crips, which is chronic regional pain syndrome in my left foot, and that's kind of who I am. And I. I love how you, well, I guess I'll let you just talk about sort of what that means and how people sort of get away from that sort of problem. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I first came up with the word diagnocentricity. I'm like, no one's going to want to hold on to that. But are you <laughs> diagnocentric is a little easier. So it's kind of like, you know, if you're egocentric or, you know, people can kind of relate to that word that if, if your world and your thought, everything revolves around a diagnosis, then it's hard to decouple and, and actually imagine that you can be a full person beyond that. And so I think that, you know, just like you said, even as physicians or clinicians, we get diagnocentric, we get focused on the diagnosis and not the whole person. Um, I think it's, 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 not, it's not good for patients to fixate on something that could have been an inappropriate diagnosis, <laughs> not yeah. accurate. And so you're, you're barking up the wrong tree. Um, you know, and, and these things that are, um, it's like they're things to, to just like fix. And much of pain is about like this journey of understanding. There are so many things that whether it's stress, whether it's um, lack of activity, whether it's extremely poor diet, um, lack of sleep, you know, just one night, even as physicians, you go all night without sleeping, you might have these aches and pains. Like there's so many things that can layer upon each other. Um, I like somebody had mentioned like a canvas. Our life is like a canvas. We, we kind of have these, these uh, marks or, or maybe these things that have happened to us and they start coloring our canvas and we start layering it. We can change that the way it looks by doing different things, but it doesn't mean it has to stay the same. So I feel like uh, a, a diagnocentric type of lifestyle or approach to medicine or approach to pain is a very limiting way um, and not always appropriate because <clears throat> there are times where a specific diagnosis is important, but when you're dealing with pain that doesn't resolve in a short period of time and it becomes chronic uh, long-term, uh, pain is pain regardless. These inputs that I talked about earlier are always relevant. You know, there might be more sensory input than other pieces, but things are always at play. And so if you get fixated on a diagnosis, then, um, you know, I feel like sometimes our strategy, it, it, you're, you're, you're taken away from the big picture of what pain is. It presents in different ways, but there are multiple things that you can do for yourself or other people can coach you through or facilitate to help you change some things to get the nervous system to calm down and pain is all about protection that's the biggest message and if you think about anxiety around surgery um, stress everything that our body is doing 
and I mean brain, physical body, whatever you want to say, the whole system is looking out for you. So it's all about protection, but they manifest in different ways. So that's where my curiosity and in intrigue is, is magnified because when you think of pain, we all manifest stress in different ways, manifest pain in different ways. Of course, certain injuries can, you know, manifest things a certain way as well. But, you know, some people get stressed out, might feel like they need to go, you know, pee all the time or have a GI <laughs> episode. Some people get headaches. Some people get back pain. Some people get, you know, uh, neck pain. But trying to, it's hard to extricate all these things and make it real simple. And it's very distressful for physicians when you feel like you have to do something to somebody. And the way we pr made people perceive us is that we have the answer and that we should to be a good doctor, we're going to fix them. But the problem is, is that when pain is one of those things that doesn't self-resolve within a healing time, if there was an injury, which by the way, pain, it's not always involved with injuries. Your kid can be nervous and have abdominal pain, but you're not going to cut on them. Right. You know, so I can, I can get pretty passionate about that, but if we get fixated on diagnosis, um, it's, you know, a patient is not a diagnosis or a whole person. And if the patient fixates on the diagnosis, they are not addressing all the many things that could potentially help them with their pain. Talk about, about then this kind of goes into the next part, right? Like the anti-pain lifestyle. So you talk about if you're someone who has pain, how do you, how do you either cope with it, deal with it, alter the sort of your state in it? Because no one wants to be in pain. I mean, I think we all accept pain at times and we recognize it has a you know utility. Like you touch a hot stove, you want to move your hand away. Uh, you exercise a lot. You have that sort of the ache the next day. That's a sign that something good happened. Uh, but obviously you don't want to have that feeling all the time. So what do you, what do you, why did you just go through the anti-pain lifestyle? What, it, what you mean by it? Sure. Well, and let me just make a statement. There are people that have misconstrued me to say that I'm anti-medicine or like anti-medical field. There's a time and a place for everything. The problem is we default to the medical system all the time. And, and of course, they're there to rule out red flags. You know, if you're really worried about something, then you can have someone rule out those big things that could kill you, you know. Right. Um, once that's done, now, granted, things could change and revert back to a medical emergency or red flag and, you know, you have it readdressed. Um, but there's a lot of fear and anxiety that wraps around um people that have pain. We don't like it. It's the, by definition, something <laughs> right. uncomfortable. Um, and so emotionally, physically, however you want to put it, pain is, is pain. And so um, I like to look at the anti-pain lifestyle as just a way to minimize um, the interventions by the medical system. So the things that you can do to help yourself, which I am biased, um, I'll say that from the get-go, because I found myself doing that knowing that I have avoided probably, if I had pushed the medical system to take care of me and to do something for me, I could have very easily gotten it. Um, oh, sure. No problem. Um, the I incentives have, align, right? It's what? The, I, I was gonna say the incentives align. Sure, sure. Right, so that, yeah. If I demand it, there's something there. <laughs> so, um, but the anti-pain lifestyle is, is, you know, I listed out several, you know, like a, a list of things that could, you know, that have been shown, like whether, you know, the things I mentioned earlier that just the things that are good for wellness are good for helping pain. Right. So that that's, that's a, an important part. 
but I would say that pain is your teacher. So, you know, the first thing, like if I have an episode, an acute episode of like some back pain or something, the first thing I do is I slow down and I take a deep breath. <laughs> and, you know, people realize that the one thing you can literally control your breath. The one thing that's doing without you telling it to, it's the one thing you can interrupt and consciously do and activate the vagus nerve, which is tied into every other system in the body. Um, so anything you can do to help calm the nervous system, which is, you know, the whole system your body is trying to protect you. So anything you can do to kind of slow yourself down in those moments. Uh, I mean, look at Lamaze and people having, you know, in childbirth. I mean, there's, there's, there's some, some evidence there that there's, there's some good things. Um, mm -hmm. But slowing yourself down, that's the first thing you control is to slow down the nervous system. And for me, um, I don't worry too much about what it means. Uh, and people are trying to make meaning out of their pain or trying to understand what's causing it. And I think there's times where that's important, especially if there's emergencies or red flags. For me, I actually internally, my thoughts revolve around the idea that I'm safe. It's okay. I slow down and take a deep breath and I slow down my movement or I change my movement. So for me, it's a very movement-based psychological um, process that I go through. And even if I'm in the middle of a, you know, I never start in a run right away, I'll move into it. I adapt myself slowly. So I don't go from a beginner to a marathon runner that that will likely, likely lead to pain, not always, but I know from habit <laughs> or in the past that if I, if I go kind of ramp up my activity over time, my body has the ability to adapt and it no longer feels like it needs to warn me that something might be going on <laughs> or my muscles are trying to repair itself from like this, this journey of really difficult activity that I wasn't prepared for. I mean, look at athletes there, there's a lot of adaptability and um, pacing that they do and their training. And there's a reason for that. So all the receptors don't fire off and get mad. I, I call it get mad, but, um, and people have the problem with using those emotions. But for me, I just try to, um, you know, be smart. Like if I am in a run and I start feeling knee pain, I don't think, oh gosh, I'm 46 years old and I can't run anymore. So that mentality changes my behavior to stop. What I do is I slow down. I kind of just walk off a little bit. I might change the way I put pressure through my foot and then I don't have pain or I'll stretch out my quadricep, which stretches out. Like, so I, whatever I'm attributing it to, it probably doesn't matter because I might be wrong. So <laughs> our attributions as to why we have pain may not always come through. Um, but if I know it's not an emergency, I just, I work through my mindset and I work through adapting to the situation not what I can't do, but more of like, what can I do and how can I do it better? So, um, you know, so as far as the anti-pain lifestyle, that's part of it is realizing this is trying to teach me something. Maybe it didn't like the way I was hitting the ground. I don't know, but I just change it, adapt it. And, and if it gets better, great. If not, then I haven't figured it out. And, you know, I just take a break and try it again. But um, I think, unfortunately, people have a lot of Either they know someone that had back pain and they were an invalid for the rest of their life and yeah. there's associations with that and fears. And so you have to tap into what is, you have to have an awareness and a mindfulness about what you're feeling. Um, and there's a lot of things that I listed about wellness. I mean, I can go through the whole list, but you know, 
as far as nutrition and, you know, hydration was listed in there, but I'm, I'm listing all the things that are basic wellness. Um, you know, if yeah. you think of all the extremes, um, you can't go without, like, you can't go without food for too long and you can't go without water for too, like just basic wellness things, um, just to kind of cover your bases. But people, if they kind of really be honest with themselves, because we norm what our norm, our normal lives may actually not be healthy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. we've normalized what's, you know, what we're used to. So there's things that you have to be honest with yourself and, and look at all these various wellness aspects that I list in the book and the things that maybe, maybe you're not being attending to your, your health. Maybe you're not attending to the unhealthy relationships in your life that are creating a stressor for you. And if you don't believe that stress or, you know, unhealthy life, if you don't believe stress affects you physically, um, you just find a kid that's stressed out about going to see a bully at school. Um, you can tell yeah. there's physical symptoms. At least they're expressing that. You have to believe that. Um, we believe everything else in medicine when people describe things. And But somehow when you can't see something, that linear thought process again, you don't, you don't want to believe that they're having pain. But you always always have to believe that someone has pain. Um, that is probably the worst thing that we do in this system is to minimize, devalue their experience. And I think most of what I did to tie it back into my training, I gave people time. I validated their experience. I showed interest and curiosity in what they're going through and they trusted me. And they believed that they could get better. Um, I had that confidence, even though I had some doubts as to how much I could help them. Um, my problem back then is that I tied their outcomes to my value. And I realize now that it's the journey. That journey, it doesn't necessarily happen overnight. And that's why it's so hard for someone like us with acute pain service stuff to not get burned out because we, we tie those outcomes to us and how good we are. And I realized that all I can do is be a facilitator of change, empower them, try to educate them. Problem is in this world, the, the, the framework of which we're demonstrating what pain is, patients don't really get the, the more modern understanding of pain because as clinicians, we're not demonstrating that to them. We're making it seem like we can fix them. So it's this dual um, let down. And so <laughs> I, 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 we kind of shoot ourselves in the foot there. So I, I feel like patients, um, the best people I've done a couple of coaching things online. And I literally had one person after one session, just say that all she needed was someone to let her know she wasn't going to hurt herself by moving and that she wasn't going to damage her spine. Huh. So the messaging that we give people, even by degenerative disc disease, that diagnocentric thing you talked about, you know, who cares? They're like wrinkles, you know, they're like wrinkles on our face. We never say you have pain because you have wrinkles in your face. I say that in the book too, but you know, the internal aspects of us are going to look different. It doesn't mean it's associated with pain. We have plenty of people that have all that and have no pain. So a lot of ironies. Yeah. When, I mean, the thing that runs through the book is moving movement. And so it's important with pain that you continue moving. You don't stop because, uh, but you just move differently. Like you said, you, you may you listen to your body and do something a little it, stop and go slower or 
don't bend over that one way or whatever it might be, or look for someone to find who can help you find, you know, those exercises or whatever it might be to stretch some, a joint out or do a, some, a simple manipulation. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the tricky thing with back pain, I, and I spent in medical school, we had to do rotation orthopedics. I ended up on the back team for two weeks. And the things I, I always will remember are the, the cert, the head surgeon said, and he had a horrible displaced intervertebral disc. I think it's like L3, 4 or something like that. And he was in agony for six to nine months. Never had anyone operate on it. Because, he, because he'd seen people who had operated on it, and now they're usually not a whole lot better off five years out. Plus, they've got a surgical scar and there are changes that happen with that. And now you've got, now the next time you have to have surgery if you had to have it, it's a you know bigger endeavor. You've got to have instrumentation, fusions, or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And so that I really I took that away from from that, and that was sort of the the big thing. That, but also we would see people who had neurologic deficits because of something happening in their spine, and they absolutely had to have surgery, right? Because mm-hmm. if you don't, then you have permanent weakness and sure and resulting. And that's the whole thing. You have to you have to not always assume things are nothing. But listen to your body, and if there's something that's concerning, you have someone check and make sure it's nothing that is that is irreversible or potentially right. And then once you get past that part, which is probably fairly rare most of the time, then you just have to find an intervention, right, to to sort of take care of things. You you also talk about genetics, and I think this has become something that has changed a lot in our thinking. I mean, I had Jason Fung on recently. We talked about cancer and how our thought of just cancer and genes and mutations and has changed radically since I left medical school. I mean, the stuff we were talking about, I'd never heard of. And um, epigenetics is a thing that really outside of, I want to say her name is McClintock. Is she the one who did the, the epigenetics with corn where the different genes would jump from one kernel to the next and change the different, I think I she won the Nobel Prize. I think she won the Nobel Prize from that because she's the one who first discovered that that genes could change based on their environment. And so that, you know, yeah. Anyway, uh, but the genetics are not, they're not static. And I think we've always thought, oh, I'm going to be five foot eight and that's, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm going to be five foot eight. Well, we know that's not true because it depends on whether you, what your nutrition status is, right? You might not be five foot eight. You might be five, four. Right, right. Or whatever, right? Yeah. Uh, talk briefly about genes and how, um, you know, maybe instead of just letting the genes sort of tell us who we are, you kind of mentioned you, we need to tell our genes who we are. Yeah, so um, it's it's interesting. I'm always in a debate with my mother about this. <laughs> um, she comes from you know her generation and how genetics is much more of a a driver for who you are and what you become, what you look like, and all these things. And you know genetics are just this encoding, um, but you have to create the proteins. So you know the epigenetics is how you know how you're transcribing from that genetic code and various types of behaviors can dictate what is created from that genetic code. And so that's how I kind of see epigenetics. That wasn't the exact definition. Uh, your, your listeners should <laughs> look that up. <laughs> um, but in general, everything that I talked about from a wellness standpoint will more positively influence your genetic code to create the proteins and the various things that can drive, you know, whether you're, you know, your body composition or, you know, various types of, um, you know, medical issues that could happen. And so that's, that's kind of part why I inserted, and I think I only had like a couple sentences of that in there, but it was part of that whole anti-pain lifestyle that what you're doing is influencing your genes. 
So from an epigenetic standpoint, that phenomenon is it's crucial and it's important. You know, how much each particular behavior is influencing. I mean, I don't I it'd be hard for anyone to put that on with a number. Right. Um, but your your what you do in your life and you know trust me being human in this world and all the communities it's hard to be perfect um i have my own challenges at times as well and but i think it's really enlightening to to make you feel like you don't have to be as diagnocentric about a diagnosis that you could potentially influence if it's an accurate diagnosis in the first place um you could influence those things i mean even people with like parkinson's disease based on your lifestyle can influence how quickly that you know, I'm not a Parkinson's expert, but you see people that they get the diagnosis, but they've kind of put it on a mild version of it versus like a terrible, severe form of it, based on how they radically change their lives. And and I think that's incredibly um, inspirational, and reminds us that we have some power over our genetics, and that we're not just a victim to this, these genes. Now, there's some things that are you know, if you're missing particular type of um chemical in the body it has to be replaced sure. I mean, there's there's certain things that are extremes but but many of us who are healthy during our first few decades you know and then suddenly start having these chronic things or autoimmune things like it's amazing how you change your nutrition and diet or change your lifestyle or decrease your stress in your life and that can can change the you know trajectory of of what your health is doing um so i i don't know if i answered your question no, I think so. And I mean, I guess my simplified thought of epigenetics is really like the the genome that you have is pretty much like a recipe. Mm-hmm. But you can only make, you know, if you don't have all the ingredients, you you can't make certain things. And so I think and it can only do what it what it has has access to and and that whether and also there's some obvious things too, right? Like if I lift a lot of weights and do a lot of physical activity, I'm going to be stronger or whatever than if I don't do those things. I mean, that has Genetics have they they have some effect obviously on how well you'll be able to do and what your maximum achievement can be. But yes, absolutely, you're you're dependent on what you can do in life. And for the and for most people, unless you're going to try and be on the tippy top elite of whatever it might be, it doesn't matter. I mean, you're still going to be doing pretty well if as long as you adhere to some basic things. And so, I think you know that's maybe that's the message of your book that you can you have some control over these things. It's hard to define and and I, before we sort of throw all physicians under the bus for, <laughs> um, for doing too many procedures and doing things that they, that are inappropriate, I think, you know, when people come to you with a problem and you have, and you have a solution that works sometimes, you're inclined to use it and you can't fix things that you don't know about. So if people don't tell you that, oh, I've, you know, someone passed away and I also lost my job and there are a couple other things going on that may contribute to the pain. I mean, you're not going to be able to fix those things, but maybe you can fix the person who's got, you know, maybe the nerve block helps or something, right? I mean, I think that there's definitely, um, there's an, there's an allure to that for, for a physician to, to try and fix those things. And sometimes they help, right? So that's, that's a hard thing. And that's interesting. Why they help is a bigger question. And, um, and, and true, I, I don't, certain people have been in my circles recognize that I'm different than the other pain physicians that are doing interventions <laughs> in surgery, surgery center that I, um, but interestingly, that uh, particular physician, the pain physician read my book and um, he's now converted to a non-opioid practice 
um, I'm not saying I was part of that. I think because he was kind of leaning in that direction of thinking, I'm not really helping people live their lives. I don't think this is the best solution. I need, I think he was open to reading my book. That was part of it. But you only know what you've been taught. And then over time, as you observe things, if you're honest and you're willing to overcome what's called cognitive dissonance and this discomfort of recognizing that maybe what I was taught is not really the way for everyone and the financial benefits that I've been receiving from that type of way, if you're willing to overcome that, you'll recognize, and unfortunately for some close friends of mine, um, it was an extremely, I have like probably five physicians that have stopped doing interventions that I know. Um, and in, it's, well, yes, in different realms, um, but they're all pain physicians. And it's extremely distressing, uh, anxiety provoking, nearly life destroying, um, because your identity is wrapped around with what you're doing. And so it is a very difficult for those that are maybe willing to, you know, realize that the journey of going through understanding pain can be painful in and of itself, <laughs> um, is real. And I, I do believe, believe it's worth it because you actually can look at your own life and recognize the stress, the anxiety, and the pain, the biggest messages, like I said, are pain is about protection. And if you realize that all this anti-pain lifestyle that I framed it that way, it's all about finding things that make your body feel safe. And you're trying, for some reason, your body is perceiving danger, whether it's sensory components that yes, maybe if that injection was done, the sensory input is different for that period of time, or they believe that that's the thing that needs to be done, or they love seeing those people on a frequent basis and love seeing that physician and the caring attitude and the comfort they receive. All of those things can help people feel safe. Those are just a few examples. It is important if you finally go down that road which I implore every pain physician to do is to learn about a little bit of the science of pain. And when you do, you, it's, it's incumbent upon you to share at least the resources for your patients to recognize there are other things I can do because it's not always just one thing in our life that can make our life better or our pain better. There are so many things that are layered upon each other that can have this kind of like this um, ripple effect. And so um, I, I think that there's a lot of ways, you know, people that have trauma, you know, even expressive writing has been, I don't understand how it works, but apparently it does amazing things. Um, and so if you, if you, if you can embrace and help those people willing to help themselves and you give them more than just what you can do to them, you'd be surprised there are people out there that they just need the resources. They just need to know, and if they want to work through that journey, it is their job to work through that. They may need a coach along the way, but um, I think uh, learning about pain in a way that is practical, more modern, will help you not only with your own life, but your own patients. Yeah, well, that's a great message. Well, it's we've come to the end of the conversation here. Where's a great place for people to keep track of you and your writings and so they'll know when the next book comes out? Yeah. Um, if you just go to challengedoctor.com or the challengedoctor.com, they're the same place uh, or my name.com, but challenge doctor is the easiest way. And, uh, for those, you can read about why I named myself that, but, um, 
I think I challenge myself and society and the medical system and even the word itself has the word change within it. So you can see change within challenge, first three letters, last three letters, spell oh, change. Oh, that's very clever, clever, yeah. <laughs> well. So I like, I, I use that phrase, the challenge doctor for a lot of reasons, um, you know, uh, just gives us some different perspective. I like reframing things. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Melissa Katie, co-host of the Change Physician Podcast which I'd highly recommend you add to your list if you're not currently listening. Today was anything but a pain talking to you, so thanks so much. <laughs> Most welcome. It's always a painless experience and joyful experience to spend time with you. To talk later. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. But before we end, don't forget to reach out to MedEvolve. For those of us who know how hard it is to build and maintain a sustainable business, we understand that bringing the right help to achieve our goals is really important. Get in touch with them for data-driven analytics, workflow automation, and medical billing technology and services by going to www.drpodcastnetwork.com slash medevolve and get going on the right path. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.